Hello, and welcome to the final episode of Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, academic associate at the Sainsbury Institute, Daiwa scholar, and archaeology PhD at the University of Cambridge researching language and interpretation at Japanese war heritage sites. Today we are joined by Aika Rotz, Associate Professor of Japanese Studies at the University of Oslo, to discuss the agency of animals in influencing human society and cultures. Aika's collaborative project, Whales of Power, explores how whales have affected ritual practices in coastal communities of East Asia, and how those practices have adapted and changed in the 21st century. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, good afternoon, Aka. Thank you for joining me again on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So first off, uh, we had you on the show back in the first season discussing heritage making, but for our unfamiliar listeners, could you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Yes, my name is Aika Rotz. I'm an associate professor at the University of Oslo in Norway. I have a background in religious studies and Japanese studies, um, and my early research was mostly on Shinto in contemporary Japan. Uh, I'm the author of a book, uh, Shinto Nature and Ideology in Contemporary Japan, Making Sacred Forests, which was published in 2017. And recently, uh, I've also been interested, as did the topic that we discussed last time, uh, where we, we, we talked uh, uh, the politics of heritage making in Japan, and in particular, and the heritageization of sacred sites and ritual practices, uh, which has led to, to several publications, including the edited volume Sacred Heritage in Japan, which I co-edited together with Mark Tierwin. That one came out in 2020. And also recently been interested in sacred groves in Okinawa. So I published some articles about that. Uh, and the project we're going to discuss today is something that kind of grew out of uh, these interests in, in in sacred sites and religious environmentalism uh, and in uh, religious heritage making, and that's the project Whales of Power, uh, Aquatic Mammals, Devotional Practices, or sorry, uh, Aquatic Aquatic Mammals, Devotional Practices, and um, Environmental Change in Maritime East Asia. And this is a project that was funded by the European Research Council, it got a starting grant, it started um, about three years ago, uh, and sort of we're now sort of two thirds into the project, um, and that's a larger comparative project that I also uh, have a, a postdoc and three PhD candidates working within this project. Yeah, so this is sort of how I got to this point, and it doesn't. It, it, we'll probably discuss this more, um, but it. It's not only about Japan, it also looks at practices in other parts of, of East and Southeast Asia, but ritual practices in relation to environmental change, in particular whales and other marine mammals. Great, very exciting. So today we'll be talking about the agency of animals in influencing human cultures, in particular the role of whales on, and other aquatic mammals, as you, as you mentioned, on coastal societies through your project Whales of Power. Can you tell us a bit more about the project and what kind of fields of study it encompasses? Yes. So the main topic of the project, so to speak, is ritual practices and nature conservation 
social change in coastal societies in different parts of East and Southeast Asia, as I said, mostly Japan, Vietnam. Um, we have also case studies from Indonesia, from Okinawa, and we have one case study which looks more at whaling and international politics. I'll talk to that a bit, a bit later. And central to this, as the title suggests, central to this project are the whales, uh, the marine mammals, but ways in which they relate to human actors and to other non-human actors, such as gods and spirits, or indeed whales becoming gods or spirits. Um, and various various parts of the Asia-Pacific region, uh, there are, people believe that whales are somehow divine actors, they're either divine messengers or they're embodiments of particular deities, or they become spirits after they have died uh, that have the power to affect uh, human society, and therefore they are subject to different kinds of rituals, ritual pacification, ritual uh, memorial services, uh, and indeed different types of worship. The overall objectives of the project, they address problems within religious studies and within Asian area studies. So the project uses theory methods from anthropology, from environmental humanities, from history to address what I perceive as problems within, first within Asian area studies and second within religious studies. So the three overall objectives, the first one is um, to apply recent insights from the environmental humanities to the study of religion. Religious studies as a field, uh, sort of the non-confessional study of religion, uh, is very anthropocentric. It focuses primarily on human actors in history, which makes sense because religious studies, in a way, has grown out of or is a response to theology, which looks at the role of the divine in history and says, so, "Well, we don't, we don't no longer accept that divine is a, uh, or that God uh, is a historical actor." So we sort of put that in brackets and we look at what humans have done in history. So if you look at the study of religion in, in Japanese history, for example, it's very much about what different different humans have done and how they have used rituals or, or, or uh, religious doctrines and so on. So this sort of anthropocentric paradigm within religious studies, the sort of historical constructivist approach, I think has been very important, but it doesn't always allow for, for example, uh, environmental change, climate change, non different different non-human actors, whether that's animals, non-human animals, or whether that's diseases, or how they have affected and continue to affect human societies, including religion. Right? So one of the things that the project to so the first main objective of the project is to take some of these some of these approaches, such as multi-species ethnography, from the environmental humanities and then and then apply this to the study of religion or see what happens when we use those kind of theories to uh, interpret, for example, ritual innovation, ritual change. The second objective of the project is related to this topic that we discussed in our last podcast, which has to do with heritage making, and in particular, how local worship traditions, so those worship traditions that are typically called folk religion or, or popular religion, that's often are linked or relate to place-based deities, ancestral spirits as well, 
um, how these worship traditions, local festivals and so on, local temples, how they change in what we might call a secular age, how they change in the 21st century, uh, not only in Japan, but also in other parts of East Asia. Um, and uh, then uh, especially what are the new meanings that are attributed to ritual practices. So concretely, uh, one, or one of the examples or one of the things that happens is that these kind of ritual traditions, they're reconfigured as heritage, cultural heritage, very often as in intangible cultural heritage uh, that leads then to new types of state patronage for those kind of practices. Um, so that's kind of what we discussed last time. So that's the second sort of main objective, looking at these these ritual practices comparatively and then see so what happens when they become heritage, when they're classified as heritage. Um, and the third has to do with what I perceive as a problem in Japanese studies. Um, it, and also probably in Chinese studies, although that's not really my field, uh, but but generally within within Asian area studies, and that's something that I call methodological nationalism, the ways in which it's different from ideological nationalism. It's not the idea that, for example, Japan is unique or is superior to other countries per se, but it's rather the taking for granted of Japan and Japanese as the main unit of analysis. The reification of certain traditions, certain practices as Japanese religion or Japanese literature or Japanese philosophy, uh, and then asking the question, what makes X or Y religion? What makes X or Y philosophy without, making, without asking the question, what makes it Japanese? So rather, so methodological nationalism is sort of the, the taken, taken for granted the Japanese-ness of things. Um, and what I think we should be doing in Japanese studies is look at processes of Japan making, how and why do certain practices get to be classified, how are they classified as Japanese, both by scholars, by academics, but also by actors on the ground, uh, by, by state actors and corporate actors and so on, where other practice, practices are excluded from that category Japanese, right? Now, the way to do this, to ask those kind of questions, I think is through transnational comparison, transnational comparative research. And there's some very interesting work uh, that has been done in recent years. Uh, scholars like Peter van der Veer, Laurel Kendall in a recent book, that scholars of Asia who have the courage to do comparative research in different parts of Asia, and then see that there are actually many similarities and many sort of similar patterns, but also, of course, various differences. So the, the third main objective of the project uh, is to contribute and to develop further this new comparative paradigm within Asian studies that no longer takes the nation state for granted as the main unit of analysis. It's a very exciting and refreshing approach uh, from a Japanese studies perspective, for sure. Now, uh, as you mentioned, Wells of Power is not a Japan-centric project, but rather transnational in its focus. Given the global spread of whales and whaling, uh, why did you decide on a regional focus of Asia? Yeah, so this is one of the things that I, I sort of, um, um, having this background in Japanese studies, like many other people, before I started this project, before I became interested in this topic, um, when you think about whales in Japan, the first thing that comes to mind is whaling, right? Uh, and that's the, typically that's the kind of questions that I ask. So, oh, Japan, that's like this long, this whaling country. Why do they still continue? Do they have this long tradition? So part of the, and this is, this is in fact an image of Japanese culture. This is actually closely related to what I was talking about, methodological nationalism. The idea that there is a sort of 
unified Japanese culture, a sort of a singular thing with, with some regional variation and so on, but still there is this thing called Japanese culture, and whaling is an intrinsic part of that that goes back to traditional, at least early modern uh, or uh, uh, pre-modern times, and perhaps, as some people would argue, all the all the way back to prehistory, which is which is very uh, contentious. Early <laughs> modern whaling in Japan, as, as you may know, some people may know, is something that emerged in some parts of the uh, Japanese archipelago in the 17th century, and that was sort of small-scale coastal whaling that became part of Edo period, uh, 17th, 18th, 19th century. Um, uh, fishing practices, but only in certain parts of the country, western Kyushu, south of Shikoku, the, uh, what's now Wakayama Prefecture, so the key peninsula. Um, in many other parts of the archipelago, people did not engage in whaling, right? And actually, widespread whaling is something in Japan that really doesn't emerge until the modern period and whale meat didn't become a central part of, of, of Japanese people's diet, most people's diet, uh, until actually the occupation period. So we're talking mid 20th century and so only for, for a very short period of time. So anyway, so there's sort of a, a brief um, um, excursion and there's much more we can say about this and other, other scholars have done excellent work on and the histories of, of, of Japanese whaling or non-whaling um, Jacobina Arch, Finn Holm, uh, there are many others who have written about this. But that is the image that comes to mind when you think about whales in Japan is, or that most people will have, is whaling. Um, now, one of the interesting things also in my project that many of the whale-related rituals, many of the whale tombs, the temples that I go to, these are actually, some of them are places historically associated with whaling, but many others are places that where whales, where they beached, where whales sort of accidentally, whales who got lost and they accidentally died. Um, and then the fishing villages, they might use that particular whale and might sell the, 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 the bones, the oil, the balines and so on. And they would erase a tomb or a grave stone uh, and they would conduct uh, memorial rituals for the spirit of those whales. In some places, this has continued until today. There are other parts of Japanese archipelago where people would not consume whale meat, would not use uh, dead whales and worship whales as incarnations of uh, uh, maritime gods, right? So this is, especially in the Tohoku region, there are several whale shrines that are actually uh, have those kind of traditions where whales were associated with 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 deities quite similar to vietnam and sort of now was <laughs> kind of a long explanation but this this brings me to your question why um why it's why it's not only about japan why it's a comparative project um this actually came when i was i was living in vietnam uh, about eight years eight nine years ago and I sort of accidentally came across a whale festival. I mean, whale worship is quite common, or the worship of a, a maritime deity that people believe whales are the embodiment of this particular deity is very common in fishing communities in South and Central Vietnam. But it's not very well known outside, even within Vietnam, it, it's not particularly well known. And especially internationally, there's been very little research on this tradition. So I didn't, at the time, I was living in Vietnam while, while working on my PhD thesis writing about Japan. Um, but I wasn't aware of this. I didn't know this this tradition existed. And I sort of came across and I came across it and became very interested and then started comparing 
this particular Vietnamese worship tradition to you know some of the whale-related uh, ritual practices and and festivals that I I read about or that I I, I kind of kind of and I knew um, uh, existed in Japan and then became more interested in comparing them. So that's kind of that was for me the idea. Okay, now I have something very concrete. There hasn't been so much research on these traditions, especially not in a comparative way. It would be really interesting to compare these traditions, see what where what's similar, what are the differences, and compare also how they're how they're changing today. Um, and that's sort of how 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 I thought. And then and then I had these sort of more over, overarching theoretical interests and methodological interests. What I what I what I explained about topics like heritage making, the role of non-human actors in religion, and then this interest in transnational comparison as a way to overcome methodological nationalism. So it was like in the Wales that these different interests and, and objectives kind of all came together. Um, and then later in the project, there were other cases that I couldn't do myself, but that by hiring postdocs, PhD candidates, that they could work on those particular case studies that would even sort of expand the scope of the project as a whole. There's one postdoc in the project, Florence Durney. She's working on traditional whaling and related cosmology and religious practices in eastern Indonesia, the island of Lamalera. Um, we have a PhD candidate Marius Paltz, who is working on the dugong in Okinawa, which is not a, a whale, but it's a different type of, of marine mammal, that historically, as also in the Ryukyu Kingdom, was perceived as a sacred animal that is near extinct today, but that also has become a very important, not just a symbol, but actually also a legal actor in attempts by Okinawan, by peace activists, to prevent the construction of a new military base in Henoko. So his project looks at the role of the dugong in in sort of this 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 conflict and local politics and and, and culture, and then we have one more PhD project by Tuan Ang Nguyen, who is working on also on whale worship in Vietnam and the heritageization of this particular tradition, uh, and in relation to urbanization in a big city in in central Vietnam in Da Nang, and the last PhD project is by Sonia Oman which looks at indigenous whaling politics. And then, so that was International Whaling Commission calls Aboriginal subsistence whaling and ways in which this is defined in international treaties and sort of the exception that is made by the IWC for different groups, Aboriginal subsistence whaling, and also sort of looking at international connections between uh, indigenous communities that, that, that practice whaling and the kind of politics of that. So that's not limited to to East Southeast Asia, actually. Um, so these are sort of the different case studies that we have in a, in a in a project, and that allow us to do this transnational comparative work, um, making it more of a group project. Uh, yes. Great, very exciting. So your specialism in the project is whale worship and the environmental change in Japan and Vietnam. Could you give us a brief comparison of the impact of whales on the religious practices of these two countries? Yes. Um, so this is a bit follow up on what I just explained. So in, in Vietnam, I don't know how much the listeners know about religion in Vietnam. So just very briefly, Vietnam is a socialist one-party state similar to China. So it's it's a country with a rather strict separation of religion and state. Certain formally recognized, formally approved religions 
in Vietnam, they use the, the term Tonyao, which is the same as Shukyo in Japanese. It's the same characters, the same neologism, uh, and there are certain formally approved religions that include Catholicism, Protestantism, Islam, some new religions, and Buddhism. And Buddhism in Vietnam is mostly Mahayana Buddhism, with the exception of the far south, which is Theravada. But most of Vietnam is majority Mahayana Buddhism. And, and is, Vietnam is part of the what scholars have called the Sinosphere, right? Or the East Asian cultural sphere, just like Japan. It's very strongly influenced by classical Chinese Confucianism, uh, writing system, architecture, statehood, ritual, etc. So in Vietnam, so there are various Buddhist uh, temples or pagodas, as they're called. In addition, there are all sorts of other temples that are not formally classified as religion. Uh, and these temples, there are temples for either local deities or deified ancestors or national heroes or sometimes foreign gods like Chinese gods. These temples collectively are something that we might consider similar to the Japanese Shinto. The only thing is that in Vietnam, it, they have never gone through a process of Shintoification. They were never standardized in the same way that in Meiji period Japan, Shinto was created, uh, how, how sort of all these different shrine traditions became Shinto, right? And were through the state that sort of forced them, separated them forcefully from Buddhism. In, Vietnam never had that process, a similar process. But there are all these different local shrines and temples, and some of them also having these national meanings and so on. Among these are certain shrines or certain temples there are sort of non-Buddhist uh, that uh, worship the whale god. Now, this whale god uh, is called Om Nam Hai, the lord of the South Sea, um, but people generally refer to the whale god as Ka Om, which basically just means lord fish. Um, and whales are believed to be benevolent, life-saving animals that are sort of incarnations of this this god. So when they're alive, they're actually, and there are stories about this everywhere. Vietnamese fishers uh, all have stories about how they, they themselves or people they know were actually rescued when they were when they were in the storm, how they were saved by whales or dolphins. Um, so they worship these the living animals, but also when a whale beaches um and dies, then the the that whale is is usually buried. Uh, and then after service, they're given ritual ceremonies and ritual offerings, uh, like a funeral ceremony. And then usually after three years, the bones are enshrined in a local temple. And those temples are, are typically located on beach or near the beach. So this is something, it's a tradition that we don't find in the north of Vietnam, but it's sort of from central and south uh, all the way to the uh, Cambodian border. Um, but it's but mostly only in, 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 in coastal in coastal communities. So scholars have there are different there are different theories. I think it's generally most historians uh, uh, believe that this was originally a a, a, a Cham deity. So pre-Vietnamese, before that part of the country became Vietnamese, it was the Champa kingdom, uh, and that this Cham deity was incorporated into the Vietnamese, the royal pantheon around 1800. And today it's become sort of this folk, uh, folk deity. It's no longer sort of uh, uh, controlled, organized by the state, but it was that way in the, in the 19th century. 
Now, one of the things that people believe that fishers in Vietnam believe is that these whales are actually, they're the helpers or they're, they're actually sort of directly, they work for Guan Yin, right? for Kannon, for the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara. So even though this is not Buddhist, it's still in various ways linked to Buddhism. Just like as you, many you know, things within Shinto in Japan, they all, all also have this, this, these Buddhist connections. Certainly they had in the early modern, modern period. Um, uh, in Japan, we, there's, there are also various, as I said, throughout, throughout the Japanese uh, uh, archipelago, there are various places where um, like tomb graves or, 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 or tombstones for whales can be found in various parts of the country. Um, in, not only in the south and the southwest, but also, as I said, in Tohoku, um, which were historically a non-whaling region, at least before the 20th century. Um, and people would, and still do, typically conduct uh, uh, memorial rituals like kuyo, or they have Buddhist monks performing kuyo rituals for the spirits of whales. Uh, in some places, whales were given, you see this in the fishing village Kayoi, which is in Yamaguchi prefecture, for example, whales were given uh, posthumous Buddhist names, kaimyo, they were given these ancestral tablets, ihai, their traditions, their local histories about the Bodhisattva Kannon appearing in dreams, telling fishers not to catch whales that were pregnant um, because whale fetuses should not be caught. But then, of course, this happened because you can't really tell from, <laughs> from the outside. You can't really see if a whale is pregnant or not. So occasionally people would catch pregnant whales. And then, uh, uh, in, in, for example, in Kayoi, they erected a, uh, uh, a tombstone for the fetuses of these whales. And uh, they had a, a, st a statue of, of, of a Bodhisattva Jizo to take care of the spirits of those whale fetuses, very similar to like the type of rituals that be conducted for human stillborn ch children and so on. So throughout Japan, there are these ritual traditions, often Kuyo, Buddhist traditions for whale spirits. There are also whale festivals. There are also Matsuri. And those festivals, that's one of the other things that, I, that, that I'm comparing is what happens to festivals in Japan and what ha happens to ritual festivals in Vietnam and sort of the similarities in both types of ritual traditions that go through a process of uh, heritageization, for example. Uh, so in Japan, various, various places, there are a matsuri that in, involve reenactments of, of early modern coastal whaling. Um, so, for example, in Kayoi or 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 in, in Taiji, which is a, a town that's that's uh, famous, is infamous in some ways for for its whaling traditions, there are these these whaling reenactments. So that were these are actually quite recent, but they were made in the in the in the nineteen nineties. Large whale copies, or large boats that are shaped like whales, and then people go on small boats and they try to try to catch the whale with with arrows and nets and so on sort of in a, in, as they would do in the adult period only now it's not a real whale it's more like a performance it's a reenactment another matsuri that i'm looking at which is also involves sort of a ritualized dance with a whale made of bamboo and fabric with a large uh, ship afloat in the streets of a, a suburb of yokaichi near nagoya 
um, which is which is one of those sort of, which is a type of a whaling reenactment that goes back to the 18th century that has now become UNESCO intangible cultural heritage. So they're sort of taken on new significance. Anyway, so there's these are, these are just some examples, but they're various ritual traditions, local traditions that in some places in Japan, in some places these would be part of Shinto, in some places they'd be Buddhist, in other places they're more secularized, but that involve whales or, or references to both whaling but also non-whaling uh, histories uh, and that our people are are still performing these today or they're they're actually sort of re recreating these traditions and so there's some interesting similarities with Vietnam but especially some of some of those traditions which are not very well known in the Tohoku region for example the Karakua Peninsula in Miyagi prefecture there's actually a whale shrine there and local history says that the ancestors, they came by boat from the south, they got in a storm and they were saved by the whale god. That's a kind of local legend or local history that's very similar to the kind of stories that you come across in Vietnam. So without saying that these are common origin or something, um, there's still, I still, uh, there are certainly, there, there's sort of a, a, a particular shared cosmology or shared ritual sphere as well with 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 those those buddhist pacification rituals that you also find both in japan and in in vietnam that makes it very interesting to compare these different traditions even if they don't necessarily have a, a shared a common origin there's still various similarities so anyway this is just a long story sort of and there 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 are many other examples that i could give but these are the kind of traditions that that uh, that i'm looking at yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, could, could you, I, I've been following you on Twitter and I've been really enjoying when you've been sharing sites that you visited dedicated to whales. Could you describe some of these sites for our listeners? Yeah, so, yeah, you're referring to this, uh, just uh, uh, this last summer, so this summer, summer 22, I finally had the opportunity to go back to Japan. I mean, as you can imagine, my research as for many of us, um, things got a bit delayed during the pandemic. So it was really good to finally be able to go back to Japan and and, and actually visit some of these sites because you, you you find new things when you actually go there and you talk to people and you attend rituals. You, you, you notice new things that you wouldn't be able to find out otherwise. So I wrote a, a thread on Twitter in which I introduced some of these, some of these places in which I shared some pictures um, sort of as a public research dissemination type of activity um, that people can have a look at if they if they if they'd like to see some of the pictures so these are the sites in in japan but they include various shinto shrines as i mentioned that are built at locations where whales beached and whales that were associated with maritime deities like ebisu so these are for example in the tohoku region uh, in near hachinoe uh, the one in Karakua Peninsula in Miyagi Prefecture that I mentioned, I visited several whale tombs, and then you're sort of trying to figure out what, what uh, you know, the history behind those those beachings. Often, also in, from the modern period, they don't always go back to the Edo period. Uh, often, also late 19th or early 20th century uh, whale tombs. For example, in Oita Prefecture, it's very interesting. Uh, Oita Prefecture is not a region historically known for whaling because mostly the whales would not pass by but sometimes whales because whales would follow these two main ocean currents right uh that go close to the one 
one sort of on the north side and one on the south side of, of the Japanese archipelago. So, so Oita is kind of a bit more inland, so it's not very common there. But every now and then, whales would get lost and they would they would get to Oita and get the didn't know how to get out or they die on the beach there. And then and then those fishing villages, or there's local histories of fishing villages that, you know, it was a difficult year and the bad catch and people were starving. And and then the belief that whales, that they would sacrifice themselves, that these were sort of divine gifts, sometimes also be, be, believe that whales were reincarnated village members uh, that were sort of then chose to sacrifice themselves to help the community but sometimes it was it was it was the, the, the ebisu uh, making that gift and then people would indeed use the because because whale is you can sell the the oil you can sell the bones there are lots of resources and and, and it's a way for a community to get through a difficult time so then they would erect tombstones and conduct rituals um, for those whales uh, interestingly you also find that in other parts of the country. So I went to Hokkaido as well. Now Hokkaido, the sort of southern Hokkaido near Otaru, there are several temples and shrines with whale bones in them that also probably go back to like early 20th century. Um, but these local, to sort of, you talk to people there, nobody really knows how those bones ended up at those temples, but they're there and the priest typically still conducts like annual ritual there. So there are some, some interesting local histories there that 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 haven't really also Japanese researchers when they write about this. There, there's lots of there's lots of Japanese research on this topic on whale tombs in Japan, but it mostly focuses on whaling regions. So there's lots about Wakayama region, for example, or about Nagasaki region, but very little about these whale bones in in Hokkaido. There's one uh, scholar who works on this locally, uh, who I met and who introduced me to these sites. But other than that, it's not very well known. Um, I went to also talk to Ainu community in Shiranuka, which is in the east of uh, Hokkaido. There is an active uh, local Ainu community. They're, they've set up several, or in a way, sort of recreated uh, Ainu festivals, uh, including a, a, a whale festival that includes an Ainu whale dance and a local a local local legend also of a whale that beached there uh, in a time of great hardship um, and you know helping the community. Uh, and these these kind of these these local traditions, they one of the things I'm interested in, what is the sort of the present day significance? How do they what are the meanings that they acquire in, in today's age? Uh, and and with the Ainu it gets extra complicated because on the one hand we're talking about an, an indigenous community that has been marginalized throughout history, uh, that are sort of people are trying to recreate some of these traditions, but they're still, you know, struggling with uh, you know various types of getting the recognition and then so on. And then you have the Japanese whaling lobby, for example, that is very interested in all these uh, ritual traditions and that in some ways tries to get involved and subsidize, for example, whale reenactment festivals, both in Shiranuka, but also in other parts of, of, of Japan, and frames these, these practices as examples of the intrinsically Japanese, ancient Japanese culture of whaling. Mm. Whereas in many places, these weren't necessarily related to whaling, they're related to whales that beached and were seen as divine gifts, which is not the same thing. So anyway, so these are, yeah, so these are some of the some of the places that I, I visited. Even in Tokyo, you'd be surprised, but even in Tokyo, there are a couple of um, 
shrines, temples, or in the, the greater Tokyo region, um, there is, for example, one one shrine that's that's dedicated or that has a whale tomb, a whale that got lost in Edo, in the river, and that died. And that was I'm not sure we should say enshrined, but at least a whale tomb is there at a local shrine. So so there are various interesting local history as local histories. And and so what I'm doing with my project, I'm not really going into studying one of these uh local traditions in 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 depth but rather i'm comparing some of these different the stories and the 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 yeah what are the the present day rituals around them and then you know try to it's more like a, a mosaic or sort of patchwork trying to collect these these different stories and then bring them together and then bring them together with stories from from and places from vietnam and see what are some of the common themes some of the common patterns there yeah i'm sure it makes some great reading i hope so so. <laughs> <laughs> so uh one of the goals of the project is to reconsider the role of local worship traditions in the asian secular age so what new meanings are being applied to animal worship in the 21st century yeah so one of the things that which i already which i already mentioned or more in general is that for example festival traditions what we might call folk religious practices so those practices that at least in in Vietnam would not be classified as religion, but rather be sort of uh, local culture, that these these are reclassified as heritage, and then also you, which allows for new types of state patronage, right, in a, within a secular system. So that that is that's more general. That's not unique to, um, to, to traditions about that have to do with animals. When it comes to animals or other kinds of it, it, not necessarily only non-human animals, but also trees, for example, other kinds of aspects of the natural environment. Then you see that they can, or in some cases, in in some cases at least, that they they acquire new meaning in the context of uh, the the Anthropocene, huh? in the context of uh, the the age in which we're living, age of uh, environmental change, of uh, ecological anxiety. Uh, the fear and the uncertainties that the people are having that comes with you know the current age the time in which we live so to give one example from vietnam one of my research sites in vietnam is a a beach near the town of hoi an which is a unesco world heritage site famous tourist destination that beach in the last 10 years or so has really suffered from massive erosion and there are various causes, various reasons for this. And it has to do, among other things, it has to do with uh, tourism development, with the construction of large beach resorts, right? Now, that local fishing community, they have worshipped um, uh, whale god for many generations. And uh, so they have had different whale temples. And some of these temples actually were destroyed by the sea. And some, some of them, some of the earlier temp temples no longer exist. And then people would erect a new temple. And then you see even with one of these new temples that already the foundations had just been built like a few years ago. And then already the foundations were, were washing away because, because of the erosion. So people are then are actively praying to the whale god and to the whales also as the material embodiment of that god um not only to save them when they go out fishing on the sea because in that community very few people make a living from fishing but that's another question so what what happens <laughs> what happens to maritime gods uh, when people no longer live and work on the sea right when they when they 
get different kinds of livelihoods and different kinds of employment, do they like Ibisu in Japan? Do they become other kinds of prosperity gods, other kinds of businesses? In some cases in Vietnam, they become lottery gambling gods. They help you win the lottery, things like this. But here in this particular case, so people mostly depended now on tourism as their main source of income. But then with all the erosion, when the beach, where there's no beach, then the tourists will also stop coming. Then you have a pandemic, so then they stop coming because of that as well. So people are actually actively praying to the whale god to bring back the sand, right? So that's one of those examples where uh, the, the 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 meaning of the ritual actually changes and the kind of the types of 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 concerns that people have also also changes in in uh, throughout time uh, so th this is these are some of the that's some of the things that that i'm interested in and also the question like can animal uh, like like animal symbolism is also in japan it's something that's very common within shinto for example uh first thing you think about when you think about animals in shinto the fox is the messenger of inari um, but other shrines they have like monkeys and mice and deer and so so many animals in japan actually have this this role as either divine messengers or sort of mediators between 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 deities and humans what are the new meanings that they acquire in a time of biodiversity loss, for example, in a time of environmental change? There's one very interesting shrine near Hachinoya, which is on a small island. And that island is a breeding place for these umineko, these, these uh, seagulls, right? And those seagulls, they're natural monuments. And the shrine is dedicated to the goddess Benzaiten. And so you see statues there of Benzaiten and and they have kuyo, so they have memorial rituals there. And Benzaiten is this this uh, originally a, a goddess originally from India, associated with the, the Sarasvati, with the, the, the river in India, right? So it's a it's an aquatic water go goddess who, who traveled through China and then came to Japan through Buddhism and then became somehow became a Shinto Shinto goddess. Um, and so this 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 shrine to, that's devoted to Benzaiten and to the, the she's also one of the seven gods of good fortune. Ebisu is one of the others. So anyway, this you see a statue there where she's taking care of a baby and then she's she's actually taking care of the, the chicks of those seagulls because many of the seagulls die, right? Many of the chicks die. But it's their breeding ground. It's a very important place for them. So it's just kind of a protected area. Um, so I, I, I'm fascinated by these local and particular places, how these different these different meanings and the animals and the goddess and the humans who come there. But at the same time, it's called ka kabushima, like the kabu. It's like this, what is it, a pumpkin, a squash. But it's kabu also means stocks, right? So people also go to pray when they have, when they buy, like, a, things go well, the stock exchange, when they want to buy <laughs> shares in a company or something. And all these things are happening. And and this tiny little island where you have a gigantic tori that was red but is now white because of all the, the birds who are shitting on it. And it, <laughs> I mean, I just love those, those small. These are these are beautiful case studies because there there's so many things that are coming together in in one of these in, in these places. But but I'm I'm and I think I mean if you go in in searching for this, you'll find many more places where. Like and and this ritual traditions and gods they always change they always adapt to changing where people have different concerns and so on, um, and, and those that have animals and trees and the sea, definitely they 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 they, they get new meanings in in a, a time of great uncertainty and environmental crisis. Yeah.
I love that kind of interplay of uh, how the shifting of cultures and meaning over time, especially in the, in the 21st century. It's really exciting stuff. So I have one last question for you. As a religious studies specialist, and forgive me if I'm using any wrong terminology here, uh, in your opinion, is the impact of animals on religious practices limited to animistic practices such as Shinto or the folk religions of Vietnam, or can it be found in more institutional religions as well? Yeah. Well, those are basically two things. First is the question which is not really your question, but is, as you're saying, animistic practices such as Shinto. This is actually one of the side projects that uh, I'm working on, uh, which relates to these topics about the role and, you know, animal agency and and, and um, rituals and so on. There's the question of animism as a category, as an academic category, and what that category does. And that's a big, <laughs> that's a big problem. Maybe it's maybe something for yet another. We could spend an hour <laughs> discussing this. But, but very briefly, the category animism, you know, is a 19th century academic construct that recently has gone through this uh, revival. That category in itself is ideologically charged, and it, the term animism does various things. One of the things it does is set certain types of worship traditions apart from so-called world religions or institutionalized religions as if it's fundamentally a different type of worship which is problematic which has to do with uh, the notion of world religions another thing but sort of when it comes to shinto is also that animism has been used to assert the fundamental otherness of shinto vis-a-vis so-called monotheism but both these categories, these are not neutral empirical categories. These are, these are in a way, sort of scholarly abstractions. And Shinto is much more, I mean, Shinto might have certain uh, uh, elements that, depending on your definition, could reasonably be called animistic. But Shinto as such is not an animistic practice. Shinto is a modern institutionalized religion that's an umbrella for various different types of shrine practices and so on. But many of the gods within Shinto, they're either characters from imperial mythology, they're deified humans, they're continental gods from China or India that traveled to Japan. They're sort of personal deities, and they may be embodied by certain sacred objects, but so are other gods in the world. So that in itself doesn't make Shinto animistic per se. So I think, I mean, we're talking about Shinto and we're calling Shinto animism is something to, to, uh, to be a bit uh, cautious about because of the, it's, it's very often also used to assert, or it functions within particular discourse of differentiation that sets Shinto apart from other ritual traditions and doesn't acknowledge the different kinds of similarities or influences and so on. So that as an aside, but to go back to your question, to Shinto or say non-Buddhist ritual traditions in Vietnam or not so Buddhist ritual traditions in Vietnam, do these is there something unique about these kind of what we might call folk religious practices and the role of animals in those traditions? But I think this is something that we can find actually throughout Asia. It's something that we find uh, animals also have always played within Buddhist ritual practices and within also doctrine, like the question of the Buddha nature, for example, of animals, but ritual practices relating to setting animals free, right? They are central in, in different Buddhist traditions in different parts of Asia. In India, I'm talking about another uh, umbrella term, Hinduism, but within India, uh, notions of animals as embodiment of, of divinity are also 
very widespread. And more generally, within religions worldwide, there's been lots of research on animals as religious symbols, animal symbolism. It's also something, you know, within Christianity and Judaism and so on, it's quite well known. Mm. Animals as taboos, subject of taboo is something anthropologists have written about. You think the work of Mary Douglas and so on. The question is, what happens when we start taking animals seriously as historical actors that have affected religion just as much as they have affected other aspects of culture and society, right? And this is something, I think this is a fairly new research field, and I hope my project can somehow contribute to this. And my main focus here is Asia, as Japan and Vietnam, and maybe a little bit beyond. But I'm thinking like the, the kind of multi-species ethnography and the environmental history, historians as well, who are looking at the role of animals in history. I think it would, there's much potential here for looking at the ways, different ways in which non-human animals have also played the roles that they have played in in, in historical development of religion as well. So I don't think Japan and Vietnam are particularly unique in this respect, uh, quite the opposite. I think we can find interesting cases with perhaps other animals and, and, and other ritual traditions uh, elsewhere in the world. And not only animals as symbols or as, you know, object, subject to, uh, to, uh, to taboo and, and rules and so on, but as actors in their own right. Yeah. Fascinating. Thank you. Uh, thank you for answering all my questions, Eka. Uh, before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? Yeah, um, <laughs> always working on too many things at the same time. But uh, <laughs> one of the things I mentioned is this 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 ongoing project, which is a collaborative project with two good colleagues um, that hopefully I, I could tell you more about uh, in, in, in the future, uh, which is um, sort of unpacking and questioning the category animism as it has been used in um in scholar mostly in 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 scholarship on japan but not limited to japan uh, so this is a yeah this is something that we're we're, we're working on right now so um i, I think i'll leave it there and <laughs> hopefully soon i can i can share more about that that work um so sort of a critical uh yeah, analysis of of of, of the, the the concept of animism and how it works, and maybe looking at other at alternatives as well. Um, an, another interest that has emerged during my research for on 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 whales and whale rituals and temples and festivals is um, the role of goddesses in East Asian popular religion. Um, and especially sort of transnational goddesses. So I already mentioned Guanyin, Kanon in, in, in Japanese, Wan Am in, in Vietnam, uh, who is probably in many, probably one of the or the most popular deity in all of East Asia. Um, but of course, there's lots of research on Guanyin within the context of like Buddhist doctrine or Buddhist studies and some text based. Um, but popular devotional practices related to Guanyin in different parts of, of, of East and Southeast Asia is something I find extremely fascinating. I'm doing it a little bit as part of my Wales of Power project, and I hope to be able to at least write one book chapter about this topic. But that's something that hopefully I'll be able to work on more. And in relation to that, I mentioned Ben Zaiten. Uh, it's another example of a transnational Asian goddess, also associated with water, with rivers and seas. And I find extremely fascinating. Um, 
Mazu, Mazu is, a, is, a, is another goddess, Chinese, or, or, or more than Chinese uh, maritime goddess. And then in Vietnam, there are various more local goddesses that also, for example, you know, like the whale god that have their origin, they go back to pre-Vietnamese, like Cham uh, worship traditions and so on. So I'm really interested in these different goddesses and popular ritual practices in relation to those goddesses. And then again, how they relate to, to contemporary to environmental change and so on. So this is something that I'm developing within the context of my Whales of Power project that hopefully afterwards I'll be able to continue working on and also in collaboration with others. Because that's the thing with that kind of comparative and transnational research. We all have our limitations, right? I'm fortunate that I know Japanese, I know Vietnamese, but my Chinese language skills are still extremely limited. And also when it comes to like historical pre-modern sources, my reading skills are limited. Others, you know, they're capable of, they're able to read those kinds of texts. They have other skills. So I'm thinking from much of this research, what we need to really need to get better generally in the humanities is do more collaborative work, co-authoring articles with others, teamwork, not just edited volumes, but actually really getting together and doing the research together and doing the writing together. And the experiences I have so far with this type of collaborative work have been extremely rewarding. I've learned so much from co-authoring articles. I have this one co-authored article on corporate form in the study of religion that I've done with John and Thomas and Levi McLaughlin and Chika Watanabe. I've learned so much from working with these three great people. And that kind of collaborative work, that is something regardless of what is the specific topic that you're working on. Um, but that kind of collaborative work, that's something I really would like to do more. And uh, now with the Animism Project, we're doing something similar. And hopefully with the transnational East Asian goddesses, I can do a similar sort of collaborative work. That's really something I hope to develop further in the, in the coming years. Yeah. Great, exciting stuff. And I couldn't agree more about the importance of collaborating outside of your field uh, for research, definitely. Well, thank you for joining me again on the podcast, Aika. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you again for inviting me. I look forward to talking to you again in a couple of years about the goddesses or the animism. You can find a link to Ike's research profile in the description below. After 85 episodes, Beyond Japan now draws to a close as I turn my undivided attention to my PhD research. I would like to thank all the guests who have shared their research with us and to you the listeners who have supported this exciting new medium for sharing academia with the wider world. I intend to return to academic podcasting again in the near future, and you can follow my blog at olivermoxon.wordpress.com for updates on that. For now, enjoy revisiting our back catalogue, and as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>